0: Welcome, everybody. You're here for School Psych Podcast. We're we're talking with um, an amazing guest again tonight. Um, this time uh, from Social Thinking. So she's going to share us um, some information regarding their program and books it and whatnot. Um, just to get us started off, my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist, and right now um, I'm working in Maryland. Rebecca.
1: Hi, I'm Rebecca. I'm a school psychologist working in the state of Connecticut. Um, like always, I, we're really hoping that you guys will chime in and participate. Tell us about your experiences teaching social skills in general, and if you have experience with social the social thinking curriculum, we want to hear your thoughts and ideas. So you can comment on the Facebook pages, School Psych Podcast page, or School Psyched Your School Psychologist. Just comment under the top posts, or you can send me a private message by clicking messages or on Twitter using the hashtag Psyched Podcast. I'll be looking out, uh, as we're talking, I'll be looking out for your comments. And here's Anna. Hi,
2: I'm Anna. I'm a school psych working in New York State. Um, we did a little poll on our Facebook page to hear from you guys out there, school psychs, and find out how you involved with social thinking and teaching of social skills and it sounds like lots of people are involved in different ways so I just want to share your responses um, the majority of people um, the number one response was teacher consultation working with teachers um, a lot of people do seven votes for each for small group and individual counseling so people are working with kids directly Um, Some Four people are sending home social stories and um, supplementing support that way, and a few people also do group instruction, and one person does parent workshops, so school psychs are touching on kids with social skills challenges and social thinking challenges in a lot of different ways, so this is very relevant to us, so I want to welcome Nancy Tarshish. Um, Nancy is a speech-language pathologist with an extensive background in working with children and their parents. She has a Master's of Arts degree in Education of the Deaf, and a Master's of Science degree in Speech-Language Pathology, both from Teachers College, Columbia University. Um, She's a supervisor of speech and language services at CERC, and in that capacity she supervises eight speech paths, lectures um, widely, and participates in research and continues to maintain a clinical practice. In addition, she co directs All Together Social, a social cognitive intervention practice in the Upper West Side, and is the co author of We Thinkers Volume 1 and 2 Curriculum Storybooks. And the GPS Guide, formerly the Incredible Flexible U, and she's also members of the Social Think- Thinkers Speakers Collaborative. Sorry. <laughs> Nancy, thank you so much for joining us tonight. <laughs> a pleasure.
3: Nice to be here.
2: So I'm going to jump right into the, our first question. Um, social skills are defined in many different ways. Um, can you speak to the general theory of social thinking and kind of tell us how the curriculum has evolved over time?
3: Sure. Um, well, social thinking is two things. Um, first of all, it's a methodology. But it's also social thinking is also thought process we all go through. Um, anytime you walk into a situation your brain registers the context you register where am I who am I with and you start adapting yourself and thinking uh, what's expected here what should I be doing what are other people doing and you're comparing yourself to others trying to figure out the expectations and you do all that in in a split second and you, you do it often at the level of the background, unless something is unusual, it doesn't really rise to the surface for you, and you adapt yourself accordingly. It's really when things don't go quite, quite right, when um, there's something in this situation where it's something that you start to think about. That's your social thinking. The methodology is really based on those concepts, and it's it's based on, um, it, it really the work of uh, Michelle Garcia Winner, who was working with young students, uh, junior high, high school students with social challenges, and the students, the higher functioning students, the students who were really capable of thinking about this, of being more flexible, the basic social skills group was not really that effective um, because it's pretty tough to teach a skill set, um, every skill a person could possibly need in any given situation. It, mm. I mean, and look what we're doing right now. This requires a whole other skill set that um we're only just really beginning to dip our toes into the water of when you think about it in terms of being able to have conversations like this with people over the internet, multiple people at one time, lots of other people watching mean really, i when I do these kind of things, I always think about the kind of that space between that time and space between um when the message gets across, I'm seeing you guys, I'm seeing your faces react, but it's definitely not in quite the same real time as if we were sitting together. So my brain is having to do these kind of minuscule adjustments to checking your reactions to things. And it's different than face-to-face. And as as such, it's much more conscious for me. Um, that kind of nuance how would one teach a skill set based on that nuance? So it was really born of her frustration and her students' frustration that teaching skills just wasn't really working. And she really is the genius behind this idea that if you teach kids to be better social observers, that they're also going to end up being better social performers, if you will. So, and then from there, she created a vocabulary that really is to... The vocabulary triggers uh, thought, essentially. It triggers... It, it's based on a concept. That, trigger, that triggers a thought, that then triggers a behavior.
0: Mm. So, That's. It's
1: comfortizing very abstract social information. Yeah, I, I find it so fascinating to try to imagine how she even began, um, because to, to like you said, to break down all of the small elements that go into taking in information, you know, processing it and then performing, like you said, social performing. It's just it's so much um, to that, and that's why I really appreciate uh, the social thinking curriculum. The think sheets are wonderful. We'll get into that um, later in our conversation, but they just they, they they make it so simple to teach a concrete skill in a way um, that makes that can make sense to kids. Really great. Mm-hmm.
0: So. Tell us a little bit about what specific skills um, social thinking is teaching and helping to develop, and maybe if, you know, is there research behind the program and what what that's looking like? Um, is it our school psychologists? Oh, we are research-based things.
3: <laughs> There's definitely research behind the program. Um, you know, you're familiar with evidence-based practice, and I'm sure you're familiar with how long it takes um, the evidence to catch up with. A practice that people are engaged in but there there is definitely research behind it and there is more and more all the time but um, you know uh, the research director Dr. Pam Crook has been involved with um, implementation science for quite a while and working on the idea of practice based on evidence and also gathering information across the country really across the world on how people are implementing it what kind of results people are getting trying to gather data um in terms of uh you know controlled trials and it's um it's slow going but it's happening there's definitely research being done there's some uh, there have been several studies published yeah. You know, one of one of the issues with something like social thinking is uh, fidelity. As you can, like with any um, therapeutic methodology, uh, just because people say, "Oh, I do social thinking," doesn't mean they're doing social thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like any methodology, it, it is um, its practice is in the hands of the clinician or the teacher. So those with, you know, the, those who take the time to read the research, to read the methodology, to take the coursework, to get involved, and then follow it, are and going to be better practitioners than those who pick up a book and say, "Oh, I'll do this." Mm. So I think it, it's all in the hands of the provider.
0: Yeah. I have a quick question, so um, as far as you, your, who are the people that are generally um, implementing social thinking? Is your main audience a speech pathologist, or I, I'm thinking it applies to a wide variety of disciplines? Um.
3: Absolutely. I mean, when we, when I give talks, it really depends, but when I, you know, I, I often get hired by a school system. I was just in Florida teaching for a school system for four days, and They had it school-wide, special ed, regular ed, psychologists, social workers, guidance counselors, speech paths. There were OTs there. You know, there was a very, very broad range of individuals. And I would say that at the Providers Conference in June, um, where people from all over the country come who are working in social thinking, it's a very, very broad base of professionals.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. I wonder, because of that, because there's so many different um, professionals uh, working with the curriculum and implementing the, the strategies, in what ways do you think that the, the, skills, the skills of social pragmatic language overlap with social cognition um, and social emotional learning? In what ways do they overlap, and in what ways do you think they're discrete
3: hmm. Well, I. I <laughs> that's a really tough question. I think, I mean, it, first of all, it depends upon your definition. So social-emotional learning encompasses social communication, social pragmatics, for sure. Um, what was the
1: third one? Social-, um, social. Social-emotional learning and social cognition, just... Uh, I am I guess I, I'm wanting to separate pragmatic speech in the way a speech pathologist would study it with um, it processing social information maybe more in the way a school psychologist would look at it. I
3: don't see them as different, so it's hard for me to answer that question. I think your social cognition is what underlies your ability to apply your pragmatic language. You can't they're not really separable. I mean, how mm-hmm. does one separate your cognitive linguistic knowledge from your ability to produce language? Mm-hmm. I you know, they're they're not separable. They rely very heavily upon each other. Mm-hmm. So, and, and in fact, I think um in, I think it may be discipline-specific language as opposed to a different, you know, a different entity, if you will. Right. You know, as a speech-language pathologist, I've done a tremendous amount, obviously, because this is my area of interest. Amount mm-hmm. of study in the social cognitive literature, and I don't see a difference. Right.
1: That's interesting. I, I guess I'm, I'm really wondering. If- uh, like how much of it have I never thought about or been introduced in school. <laughs> I guess that's why, how I'm thinking of it um, because I, I have worked with some wonderful speech-language pathologists and they, they you know they seem to understand things so differently in some senses and work so differently but yet this this area, this kind of work is so similar between us and it would be so great, I think, if in, the, in our buildings if we could have that collaboration um, you know, more regularly. I wonder how many school psychologists out there work regularly with the speech pathologists in their buildings. Like, do you guys have groups with um, joint groups that are co-run or I think that would be such a great model. I'd love to hear from you guys if you do.
3: I think there are a lot of schools that are doing that. Uh-huh. When I go to the, as I said, when I go to the providers' conference in June, when there are people presenting on um, ways they're implementing social thinking in their community or their school or you know, whatever they're talking about, um, there have many times been people speaking uh, collaborations between um, psychologists and speech pathologists, and social workers and speech pathologists. Uh, you know, so, again, I think the thing about speech, like you, so the social-emotional is one piece of what a school psychologist may do, but you you, you might also work in an area of, um, say, more mental health. You might also see a child who uh, had selective mutism, or you might also see a child who's anorexic, or you know, any of the other things you might do, like that, pathologists also do a number of other things, but I think this is a place where our our disciplines
2: overlap. Yeah. So, um, I work, I've worked in some different settings over my career, so I just want to sort of connect. Um, I've worked in, in settings where, you know, you provide, I provide my service, you provide your service, and we don't really ever have time to talk, you know what I mean? And yeah. so, like, um, I might be working on some, some flexible thinking skills, and I have no idea what the speech person's working on. You know what I mean? So there's been times, depending on what position I'm in and building and stuff, where there hasn't been the time built in or that relationship to be, like, consulting with each other. But I think it's a great opportunity where I'm at now. You know, we're using the same language because I'm counseling a kid who's having meltdowns and crying because things are different and the child doesn't have the flexible thinking skills. And so we're working on coping strategies but, um, you know, we're also talking about how something's unexpected and, like, what kind of reaction you should have and all these sorts of things. So I was kind of wondering if you have any tips for collaborating um, SLPs and, and counselors to sort of work together for that, like, coping piece that we might do and the more, like, social thinking piece that you guys might do.
3: Well, I think for me, um, and this, this might be, um, this is kind of where the work of Ross Green dovetails with social thinking. I think I'm almost always when I see challenging behavior or a child having real difficulty over something, my first instinct is to figure out well what's up, what's going on, like why is this happening? That um, that usually there is a reason, there's something, and if we get under the hood and try to figure out. What What's going on for this kid? What's the antecedent? Is there something we're not aware of? Is there something this child is coping with in this situation that we're actually not aware of? Um, so I try to kind of take a step back and look at the big picture of when is this child having such difficulty? Is it about change in schedule? Is it about transition? Is it you know what's the thing that's causing this? And then what I might discover is it's actually not it's it's the problem, not not the coping with the problem. that's the problem, if you know what I mean. If I if I can change the situation, I might not deal have to deal with the coping if that makes
0: sense mm-hmm. For sure. I, not I, that I, I don't
3: you know, not that I don't think that we need to work on coping strategies, but it's always one child's meltdown, over, say, writing might be very different than another child's meltdown over writing. And so, how we, how, and knowing what the root of the problem is, helps us to figure out what we need to do about it.
0: Mm-hmm. And I myself, I love um, yeah, working with speech language pathologists um, because I feel like, in a lot of respects, we speak the same language on a lot of different things. Um, and it's nice to have somebody else in the building. I mean, you're typically you're not going to have, you know, two psychologists in, in a building. But um, so I've always found that uh, collaborating with the speech-language pathologist has been really helpful, especially with, you know, autism. You guys are so knowledgeable <laughs> with that. Um, I mean, just the fact that you understand standard scores and research, and, and I think um, we've got some, yeah, for sure, overlap in our, our backgrounds, and it's, it's really nice. I have, um, although I haven't run a group with a speech path. Um, I did try and run a group one one year and then we just kinda got bogged down with referrals and it ended up not happening but um, you know we had this vision at least and we kind of outlined it of of what we were gonna do when we had a social thinking book and we're like and then we kinda got overwhelmed (laughs) with everything else going on but I do um, love working with speech paths.
3: (laughs) Well I work on a multidisciplinary team with a number of psychologists so I do think it is a very natural interface.
1: Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I have a particular interest in the Superflex characters. Uh, I think they're so helpful, especially with my younger students. Um, I'm wondering if you could give us maybe an example of how either the the, the characters, the Superflex characters, or... Um, or any other social thinking lesson uh, that you that you would like to talk about um, helps you see progress in the skills that you're working on.
3: Um. Well. Uh. Sure. I mean, I for me, one of the most powerful two of the most powerful tools that I use or concepts that I use in social thinking are this concept of group plan. Mm-hmm. I find that so many of the kids that I work with. Um, really, just are very self-directed and want to do their own thing, um, and that just uh, being able to use the terminology, you know, are you following your own, the group plan or your own plan right now? I have found to be incredibly helpful because it takes the judgment call out of, you know, I I want to do it, you know, I'm I just want to do my own thing, mm-hmm. and I. You know, I find that with a lot of the younger students that I work with, being able to kind of have a picture schedule, have an organization where I can say, okay, so this is the group plan. We're going to do these three activities, and then we're going to have a break, and you're going to be able to follow your own plan so that they have this real sense of how, how and when do I have to hold it together and think about the group, and then how and when am I going to be able to do my own. And I, I find for a lot of my kids, it's, it's quite powerful.
0: Yeah. Um,
3: and then the concept of thinking with your eyes is very, very meaningful to me. I think it really, what's so great about it is it really teaches the why behind this, the behavior. Why do we make eye contact? You know, why do we look at other people? Um, because there's a lot of information to be gained. And so when we transition it from, look at me, to thinking with your eyes, we're really teaching them, why do we do this anyway? Why is this important? A lot of the vocabulary is really the why behind social behavior.
1: Right. That's that's so interesting. Can you speak to that a little bit more? I'm not familiar with that um, lesson, think, uh, thinking with your eyes. So how, How would you talk about that with a student? And you do that maybe in a group
3: or, or I would do it individually or with a group. Uh, You know, I usually start with helping them to see the power of gaze shifting. So I will do activities with them where they, you know, where I might have them close their eyes and try to try to figure something out that really would not be possible to figure out when your eyes are closed Um, and then have them open their eyes and see that, oh I opened my eyes and then suddenly this whole other layer of information is available to me Um, I get why that would be important and then we transition that into this concept of um, looking at other people and I like to pair this idea of thinking with your eyes with um sometimes I'll say to my kids, Well you know, there are a lot of people clues here. So somebody will say something and then if you think with your eyes and look at them, you might there's a lot you you might see, you know, are they saying it in a friendly way, or are they saying it in a mean way? You know, you get some emotional information by looking at their face. You might see body language. You might see them looking at something, so you might get more information about what they're talking about if you watch. Um, So that's that's how I would talk to a grown-up about what I, but with a child, I would, you know, with with the kids that I work with, I do lots of different games and activities and other things that make this clearer to them.
1: Yeah,
0: sounds like fun. I like that. (laughs) What is uh, what's your favorite social thinking lesson or activity or, or, you know, your go-to or? Well, I don't. I mean, I don't necessarily have a go-to because
3: it's a very individualized inter- intervention. It's really based on the person in front of me. Um, but I, I think think with your eyes uh, or show me you're thinking about me is a very powerful thing to uh, work with young children on, or any, any individual, actually. Um, not sure I can really answer that question. I'm, I don't think I have a favorite, necessarily. Um, and, and it is, again, it's a very reactive intervention. It's not manualized where I say, okay, for the next six weeks, I'm going to be working on this. I may have that in my brain that I would like to be able to do that, but then it's 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 very dynamic because I have to see what I get back from the person I'm working with. Um, I always my colleague that I run a private practice with and I always joke that the when we first our very first social thinking groups many, many years ago, we were both pretty type A. So we wrote six weeks of curriculum. We had all the materials organized. We had these notebooks that we wrote it in. We were doing like two or three different groups in a private practice. And so we had this lesson plan. We we're both former teachers. And it was really, you know, all the worksheets and materials. And we got into the first group the first day. We started the group. We looked at each other and laughed and kind of one of us picked up the notebook and went like this because it was ridiculous. We were never going to be able to do what we thought we were once we got in the room with the kids and realized, oh, wait a minute, we thought we were starting here. They don't know this. They don't know this. They don't know that. You know, we. it's it's so based on the person in front of you. Right.
0: That, that makes me feel good that that's, that's not, I'm the only one who's had that experience of going in and then saying, okay, you know,
1: plan's out the window. <laughs> plan B. Got to go with plan B. Yeah. <laughs> so do, do you have um, in your mind then an, an order, like a hierarchy of skills, so that you would know, um, you know, to revert to plan B, that your lesson plans are ahead, ahead of the group maybe? Absolutely.
3: Absolutely. You know, I mean, so let's think about this idea of um, a group plan, for instance. Mm-hmm. When kids are very little, um, the, well, developmentally, we can teach them that there's this concept of a group plan. and We can, you know, all the things we do together, the books we read, the games we play, the stories, the... You know, the art projects, the cooking, you know, all that's our group plan. When we line up to go to lunch, when we go to recess, that's all the group plan. That's sort of a basic idea of the plan piece. As kids get older, then we start to teach them the fundamentals of how do you figure out what the group plan is. When you walk into a situation... And there, and there are people and there is something going on, what is it you have to observe to figure out the group plan? So if I were thinking that a, I walk in, start working with an older student perhaps, a teenager, and I think to myself, well, I'm going to start teaching them sort of the social observation tools that they might use to make a smart guess about what a plan is, only to discover that they don't understand this concept of group plan, own plan.
0: So
3: it's, I might think developmentally they should know this, but I might discover they don't and have to take several steps backwards.
1: Right. So that makes sense to me. And I'm, I'm wondering, it makes me wonder how... How social thinking skills um, skill building helps different populations. So when you're working on that group plan, if you have kids maybe um, uh, with on the autistic uh, autism spectrum or uh, who have trouble maybe uh, predicting um, other people's responses to their behavior, that that group plan might look different than for a student who has maybe ADHD and has trouble um, with interrupting or controlling inhibiting um, responses. So how in a group of do you you work with groups that are sort of mixed um, in terms of needing different skills or having different needs and how do you manage that?
0: Well
3: um, I live in somewhat of an ideal world with regard to social thinking because I don't work in a school setting. So I work either in my own private practice or in a clinic-based setting, an outpatient developmental clinic, where we have the capacity to form our own groups. Uh, Our groups are based on social radar. And so not diagnostic category. Okay. Because you can be, you can have a very extreme attention deficit and be very, very low on social radar based on your ability to attend to social information. And you can um, have, say, autism, but be relatively high, you know, high on social radar Um And so it's not based on a diagnostic category. It's really based on social radar. And Michelle and and colleagues, um, Pam Crook, Stephanie Madrigal, they created um, a set of profiles that really do look at um, social radar. And it's really based on social awareness, situational awareness, um, social self-awareness. So it's, it's kind of a cas, a cascade of social functioning that stems from how socially aware you are. And that's a better way to group kids. That, yeah,
1: I like that a lot. That's, that's so that, Sorry, is
2: that available, that, you know,
3: social yep. radar
2: checklist? Whatever. Actually, there's
3: a great article on the website called the Social Thinking, Social Communication Profile. And ah. if you go to the social thinking website, you will
2: find an article on this. Okay. Um, okay. Awesome. Yeah. So I have I have kids where I just I can't even get them to turn on the thinking. like it's yeah. they're so I mean the blinders are up, you know, and I feel like maybe I'm starting too high with them and I need to but maybe the radar is not on yet. I need to help turn that on or something. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, Yes,
3: absolutely, although I will say that um, your social radar, your fundamental social radar is based on your neurology. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, um, we're all going to improve as compared to ourselves, but there is no expectation that every individual will kind of uh, get to the point of neurotypical social radar.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, some will some, you know, some will hover closer of course but some won't and that is based on neurology and um, mm-hmm. your genetics
2: right that makes me feel a little better um, so uh, speaking of resources thank you for the tip for the one free resource so we, love, we love free resources but we also occasionally have money to buy things so we were wondering if you could give us some suggestions of some social thinking resources that you would recommend, books, whatever. Well, the first thing I would recommend is the
3: what we often call the Bible. <laughs> it's, okay.
0: it's thinking
3: about you, thinking about me. And it is the fundamental book that defines the methodology. It also has written in, up in the back of it the dynamic assessment which is the assessment Michelle created to help people essentially determine social radar. So it's a great. I use it all the time. It's a great assessment. I use it in parts of it in almost all of my language evaluations even um, because there's some wonderful aspects to it. Um, and, I, you know, I do a ton of social cognitive assessments. I, I also work. on the ADOS team, the Autism Diagnostic and Observation Schedule team at the clinic where I work, so I do a couple of ADOS evaluations every week, and then because of my area of expertise, I end up doing at least one social cognitive language evaluation, and then I also do regular language and speech evaluations every week, so... Um, I use parts of it all the time. So if it's thinking about you, thinking about me, it's the blue book.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: Um, That one is great. And then it would depend upon the age group you're working with, sort of thinking about the secondary materials. You know, social thinking has lots and lots of great materials. Some of them are what we call motivational tools. They're not the curriculum, but they are great motivational tools for implementing the
0: curriculum.
1: All right. Uh, Rebecca, I think we got a comment? We do. We have one um, comment from our friend Eric, and it was... Uh, I Sorry, Eric, that I noticed it a little late, but when we were discussing um, I think Ross Green, Nancy, you were mentioning, uh, Eric said, it was a good thought about how changing the situation may address the issue and may not necessarily require a need for additional coping skills. We're talking about, you know, finding the child's perspective and, and being able to intervene on the environment and um, so, you know, so that the challenge is not there any, any longer.
3: Well, you know, it's 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 really ask, answering the why question, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is it the child's coping? Does it turn out to be the child's coping strategies, or is it just that there's something in this situation that we, as the grown-ups, are not aware of that are challenging this child's coping to the max?
0: Mm-hmm. And then
3: under other circumstances, their coping might be quite fine.
0: Mm-hmm. I like that. I mean, when I'm writing a behavior plan, um, you know, we tend to try and think of yeah, those preventative strategies um, for interventions and whatnot, and then those reactive strategies for okay, when we do have the meltdown, what what's our what's our procedure here? But we're also know that these things trigger the meltdown, and so we're going to try and avoid these and restructure this. So yeah, right. Mm-hmm.
1: But,
2: All right. So um, I think we got through all our questions. Nancy, do you have any other uh, tips for us? Any other um, things you'd recommend as far as, like, well, I just tried this new game, Should I or Shouldn't I, with my middle school kids? They got it, right? (laughs) But they still think everything's a big problem. I can't get them to figure out big problem, little problem. (laughs) So, you know, any other, other, like, middle school or any other resources you'd recommend for us before we wrap up? Um, Well, for middle
3: schoolers, I guess... um, they're not quite ready for... It depends on how sophisticated I guess. I really like the uh, Social Fortune, Social Fake. Um, mm-hmm. li- that's really late middle school and, and high school. What's great about it is it's written like a uh, graphic novel. Cool. Um, and it embeds the concept of social behavior mapping, which is a core concept of social thinking. Mm -hmm. is embedded within the book, this idea that, you know, I do something which causes another person to have a reaction or a feeling, and based on that reaction or feeling, it causes them to behave a certain way towards me, which means that I'm going to have a certain feeling or reaction. And we help our students, you know, that's a way of helping our kids to see when we map it out for them that what you do, you know, comes back to you in a sense. That you have more control over how other people react to you based on your own behavior. Um, And it embeds that concept into it, which I love.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um,
1: Absolutely. For sure, very informative. Yeah. I wish you could, you know, spend some time in my building. Um, <laughs> I going to mention your Twitter handle under your name so that people out there can um, tweet, tweet at you. <laughs> well, actually, I don't know if that would be so nice. Tweet to you, uh, <laughs> at NQT11, um, and hopefully we can continue the conversation um, over time and get some uh, more ideas from school psychologists or other educators, speech speech pathologists out there, what they're doing with social thinking. It's really interesting. There's so, so many possibilities for supporting our kiddos.
3: Absolutely. All right. Nice talking.
1: Thank you. Bye. Bye, everyone.